Our sermon this morning is one of my very favorite passages in all the Bible. It's two verses from the book of Isaiah, chapter 25. Um, and you'll see so many echoes of this passage in our call of worship, Revelation 21. So many echoes of the same language. Um, so if you have your Bible, turn to it. If you have your uh, bulletin, it's printed for you there. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is your commitment. This is your communication to us of what you are doing, where everything is going. So I pray in these next moments as we are under the hearing of your word, that it would echo into our hearts and into our lives. That we would see here your intentions. That we would entrust ourselves to you. And that we would abound in a hope founded on your commitment and on your love. I pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. I remember being a kid, and I don't do this anymore because I think I'd feel guilty about uh, spoiling movies or whatever for myself. But I remember being a kid and I'd read a book with a lot of tension in it, like there's a tent, and I didn't know where it was going. And I would cheat and I would flip to the end. And flip to the last chapter and I'd read the last chapter and I'd say, okay, this is going to resolve. This is going to clear up. And in, in a way, I was spoiling the ending of so many books for myself. Um, but it's something that I felt that needed to do. And getting a glimpse of where it was going, I could maybe. Uh, get through this, the, this section of the book that was just filled with tension if I knew where the author was going to take it. I could bear the tension in the middle. Now, I haven't done this in years with a book or a movie. In fact, if you tell me you do this with a movie, I'm probably going to pick on you. And I apologize in advance. I shouldn't do that. But <laughs> if you're in the middle of like a TV series or a movie and you're looking up plot spoilers because you can't stand the tension, uh, young Tim gets it. Little Tim. Understands, But I do have to be honest, even though I haven't done this with a normal book or movie in years, I do this all the time with the Bible. All the time. I spoil it, in a sense, for myself. I do it with the Bible all the time. When the world feels too chaotic, when the darkness seems to be gaining ground and the light's hard to find, when my heart is heavy and weighed down with my own sin or the sin of others against me or uh, my grief at the sin of people against one another, I turn to the end. I turn to passages like Isaiah 25. I turn to passages like Revelation 21 to see where it's all going. To spoil the ending, in a sense. When the tension's too hard, I want to see where the author's going. But here's the neat thing with Scripture. The neat thing with Scripture is there are times, here and there, when God actually does that for us. God spoils the ending for us. He almost inserts a spoiler into the middle of the story.
story is like a, a token of hope and encouragement so we don't get lost in the weeds, so we can find our way forward. Now, our passage today from Isaiah 25 is, is that. The book of Isaiah, um, a very important book, it, it stands, uh, it looms very large in the Old Testament. It's quoted uh, quite a bit more than any other book in the New Testament, in the book of, other than the book of Psalms. Isaiah loomed large in the imagination of the first Christians, and even Jesus himself, when he thought about who he was. And if you read through the book of Isaiah, um, the first part where this passage lands, there's a lot of darkness. <laughs> there's a lot of darkness because one of the things Isaiah is doing is he walks through all the different nations of the world that exist at his time, in all the particular ways that they're mistreating each other, that they're wronging one another. There's a lot of darkness. But right here, in Isaiah 25, in the middle of this darkness, the middle of God's word against the sin of this world, there's a spoiler. There's a spoiler of what God's going to do despite the fact of the magnitude of sin and selfishness that's at work in our world. Now I want to focus here on this spoiler in a sense because one of the ways we talk about gospel here in our church is that it's good news for the world. Not just that it's good news for us individually, not just good news for us together in this room during this worship service right now or online. But the gospel is good news for the world because God's promised to make all things new. In the words of joy to the world, which I cannot wait to sing this Christmas. In fact, we might just start singing it anyway in the middle of October. If they could put Christmas stuff up at Lowe's in September, we could probably sing joy to the world in October, right? But in the words of joy to the world... God is working to make His blessings known, the grace of Christ, as far as the curse of sin is found. That's what we're talking about when we say that gospel is good news for the world. And here in Isaiah 25, God speaks to the prophet of Isaiah. Over 2,600 years ago, in the middle of the tumultuous times, as I said, it's very dark in this part of the world. But in the middle of the sentence of judgment, its wickedness in this world, God pulls back the curtain to show not only his judgment against what others have done, but to show his intentions of what he is going to do. And in a world where everything we put our hand to seems to turn sideways, where every new discovery or miracle of science becomes weaponized somewhere along the way, what will God do? How will he act? Is our world just simply handed over to the inevitable destruction that comes from the hand of wicked and powerful men, or is there light in this darkness? There is. In the middle of our chaos, we get this picture, which I think resounds as powerfully today in 2021 as it did in the days of Isaiah, a picture of the end of what God is doing. So let's look at this passage through a couple of different focuses. And the first one is this, the place, the mountain. You may have noticed it in these two verses. It says, on this mountain. Verses 6 and 7 begin that way. It tells us the location of God's action. Isaiah calls it this mountain, but what is he talking about? He's talking about what the Bible calls Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a poetic name for Jerusalem, um, which Jerusalem is literally, literally a city on a hill, a city on a mountain. Um, but Mount Zion is a name that refers to more than just the physical location of Jerusalem. It's almost this name that points to a greater spiritual significance to the, the physical location. Um, this isn't spiritual significance. But think of it when people say the triangle. They, just, they don't just mean uh, the physical locations of Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. 
the triangle, the research triangle park. It carries with this, this aspect that it's a hub for technolo technological research and development. So in the same way, when Mount Zion was used to speak of Jerusalem, it was, it was pointing to the fact that God had picked this location as the place to, quote, unquote, put his name to put his name. In other words, that Mount Zion was the location where God had set up his earthly headquarters. HQ, Mount Zion, where his work of redemption was set in a shop, where it was started to spread out to the rest of the world. Um, think of Mount Zion almost like a lighthouse, shining a beam that you can see much further than you can actually see the, the physical building of the lighthouse. And what this looked like in the Old Testament was the temple built under Solomon, the central place of worship. The central place, not just of worship, but the central place of cultural identity. It's the place, uh, the temple was literally the place where the calendar was set. The day in, day out life. It wasn't just important for people who were physically there, it was the hub for their cultural and um, religious identity. So that's the mountain that Isaiah is referring to. But God didn't just give the temple to be a cultural symbol. And his plan had not arrived when it was built. God's plan, where this is all going, is going to be an advancement of the temple. The temple is almost in military terms like a beachhead. You establish your, your, your space there, but you spread out. In the same way that like, uh, when they landed on D-Day, the beach in Normandy, they didn't stop and say, we did it. No, they had to keep going. They had to go to Berlin. <laughs> they had to keep going. That was the beachhead. But that was the temple. The temple was the beachhead. It was the place where God establishing himself there and from out of there would become his, his advancement of his grace, eventually seen in Jesus Christ. And what's God going to do on this mountain? So we know where the mountain is, on Mount Zion. Our passage points to two specific things that it mentions. The first is this, the feast. Verse 6 paints a picture of God as the ultimate host. Let's read it again. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. This is God throwing the dinner party to end all dinner parties. Now, he doesn't mention any tabletop games or anything, but he's talking about <laughs> the abundance the richness of what God is providing. Isaiah talks about this elsewhere in his book. If you look at Isaiah chapter 55, it talks about uh, an invitation for people to come and drink, um, quote, and eat without money. The idea is that everyone who's at this table isn't bringing this. This isn't a potluck. That's not what the picture is. It's not a potluck where everybody brings enough food in their family to eat and try to all combine it. The picture here, everyone that's here, that they are at God's invitation and welcome and by His grace. And He's providing. He's providing for the feast. He's providing the abundance. This isn't like a special dinner where you have, you have to like buy a plate to get a spot. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those where it's like, this is X amount of dollars ahead and food's never great. Um, and we're in, at least in my, my ties are all over to ties. I can't eat. Okay. Anyway, this isn't a you know, cover plate meal. This isn't a you have to buy your seat. This is a feast that is paid for at God's expense in every way. In fact, that's emphasized here. Look who's present at the feast. 
kids who did really great. This isn't the, you know, this isn't the uh, accelerated reader program where you get your personal canned pizza if you read uh, ten books over the summer. That's not what this is. All peoples, all peoples. God's throwing a feast that will not be limited to a select few who have earned their spot with righteousness or gained their spot with reputation or bought a spot with money. This is a feast of abundance at His expense, one with enough room for all who will come. That's the picture here. But, like every good feast, this is not just a dinner party for no reason. This is a festival. This is a profound celebration for a reason. And what's this feast celebrating? It brings us to the second thing that God's doing. The first thing is throwing this feast. But why is He throwing this feast? Because He is destroying death. Destroying death. Look at our next verse. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The picture here is that all humanity is in grave clothes. Burial shroud. Prepared for burial. Yet God reverses this. And maybe this table of mourning becomes the table of feasting. He destroys the grave clothes. But not just the grave clothes. He destroys death now, this isn't just God stopping death in the sense of prolonging life. We live in 2021, and if medical science continues on track, we're going to get better and better at that on earth. I don't want to be 200 years old, but it's not outside the realm of possibility that, you know, in a few generations, that life expectancy is going to be uh, bonkers for our, in our thinking. But the picture here is God not just prolonging life. This is God destroying the curse of sin. This is God destroying the impact of sin on His world. Now this is actually this uh, destroying of sin and its effects. And then feasting, this pattern, these things going together. This is actually symbolized for us in the sacrificial system of the temple. Now the way the daily sacrifices worked up, they included sacrifices of atonement. When we say sacrifices, we tend to think animal sacrifice, I think. Very bloody, very nasty. The idea is you're sacrificing because you've sinned, and now this is a, a, a symbol of, of, of your sin being punished in your place, and you're made like with God. That's what I think we tend to think of with sacrifice. But every day, alongside that sacrifice of atonement in the temple, alongside that sacrifice that made one right in a sense with God, there was a sacrifice called the fellowship offering. And it wasn't an offering of an animal on your behalf for your sin. What it was, was you would bring food, <laughs> essentially, to the priest and cook it. And then you would eat it before the Lord. And the, the idea was that you and the Lord, who have been brought together and reconciled in the sin offering, in this atonement, are now communing together. There is always this pattern of atonement and fellowship. In the, in, in the sacrificial system of the temple. There's a symbolic picture of feasting. That the atonement that took place in one sacrifice led to being reconciled with God and eating in His presence, belonging at His table, belonging in His household. And in this passage we see a similar thing. 
It speaks of a feast that is happening at God's expense, this feast of abundance. But the reason this feast can be celebrated, the reason why it can be thrown open and all people can come, is because God has dealt definitively with the thing that stands in the way of communion with humanity. And how does this happen? Notice it describes the way God deals with death. It says he swallows it up. That's an evocative image. It doesn't say he wipes it away or he pushes it away. It doesn't even say he smashes it or any of the other kind of adjectives that can be used or verbs that can be used to describe what he could do. It says that God swallows death. I think this is actually a poignant to how God is prepared for this feast. He provides for us so that we might consume the finest of meats and the finest of wines in this language, but he does so by him consuming, him swallowing the bitterness of death for us. That's another picture that was always there with the sacrificial system. It's the idea of God carrying sin. It's the, God of, it's the idea of God taking on the weight of what sin was. If you think about the <laughs> think about the legal system, if you've ever read through the Old Testament. The principle that was at work in relationship with each other was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That was the, the principle uh, that, that underlay um, pretty much all laws related human beings with each other. It was equity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But what does God get? <laughs> Some measly animals. Not eye for eye, not tooth for tooth. God gets some measly animals. And so if you think of it this way, every day the temple was running up further and further debt for humanity in a sense. What God was getting in exchange for offenses against him for sin never measured up. Never measured up. God was carrying it the whole time. He was carrying that sin. And in Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate reality of this, that he carries the sin by taking it upon himself. As we read in our church part of our second Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin or had no sin to be sin for us. When Paul says that, he's usually, he's actually literally using the word that's translated in the Old Testament, sin offering. He was meant to be a sin offering for us so that in him we might be righteous. In him we might become the righteousness of God. The mountain is spoken about in this passage, Mount Zion. That's the place of Jesus' crucifixion. That is where he was condemned to die. And on that mountain, what did God do? On that mountain, God swallowed up death by taking it on, by drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath that we might share in his cup of joy. But this mountain is not just the site of death. If that was it, then it would still be a story of tragedy. It would be one of those heroic stories of someone who laid down their life, and, but, you know, maybe we get some inspiration from it, but that was it. But it's also the sign of this resurrection, which brings me to my next section, the comfort, the comfort. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is a beautiful scene. Here in this feast of God's victory, he's not only swallowed up the power of death, destroyed the, 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 the sheet that covers all people in the words of Isaiah, 
And he's not only provided a feast of absolute abundance for all who have come at his expense, he applies the comfort of his victory. One commentator said it this way, it is the Lord himself who attends to our tears. The picture here is he's moving from person to person until each eye is dry. The sovereign Lord moving from person to person in the midst of the grief, in the midst of their mourning, until each eye is dry. This is the victory of the resurrected Jesus. He's defeated death by swallowing it. And he has risen in victory. And that victory for us is not condemnation, it's comfort. It's the beginning of God's new creation. Started there at the tomb of Jesus, which becomes the womb of the new creation. Applied to us in the here and now. And as Paul said, if anybody is in Christ, the new creation is coming. It is springing out and echoing out from, from the resurrection of Jesus. And seeing in its completion and consummation that Jesus making all things new as it is quoted in Revelation 21. Jesus has defeated death by swallowing. He has risen in victory. And in the here and now, right now, not just in the future, in the here and now, He has begun this comforting of us. He is with us in our grief. Whenever it comes, and he will wipe away every tear, but not just in the future. He's doing that now. The presence of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus calls him, what? The Comforter. God is at work now in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our tears. Not to shame us for crying. Not all tears are evil, to quote Gandalf. That'll be my second, that'll be my first of two Lord Rings quotes today. I'll get there in a second. But <laughs> not all tears are evil. God will attend to our grief, person to person, until all eyes dry. In the same way, it says here that God attends to our disgrace. God attends to our disgrace. That He removes His people's disgrace from all the earth. The ways we have been weighed down by our sin, the ways we've been weighed down by other people's sin against us, our disgrace will not stand in the face of God's victory. It will be removed by Him. Just as surely as He draws the eyes and removes the disgrace. And this is what God has destined us for, ultimately. Comfort on the other side of our grief. Ultimately, a dignity and glory on the other side of our suffering in this world. We get a foretaste of that now. And what happens is that foretaste, it develops a longing and an appetite to see the fullness of it come to life. As part of what the Lord's table is, when we pause and from the outside it looks ridiculous. It's a little piece of <laughs> It's a little swallow of grape juice or wine. But that develops our taste for this feast of victory and comfort. And it assures us, as we have a share in this table in the here and now, that we have a share in the ultimate consummation of that table in the future. And that's what God has designed us for. Dignity and comfort from Him. So what do we do with this spoiler? This is our spoiler in the middle of Isaiah 25. What do we do with this? I think one of the things we're called to do is in the term of one theologian, remember the future. But that's the essence of Christian hope. That we remember the future. That we remember Jesus is not done. Yes, he said it is finished at the cross. 
Because that's his redemption was paid for there. But in the here and now, he's applying it. He's applying it to us. He's not finished with us. And in the words of Revelation 21, he's making all things new. But this isn't just a far off future that we hope for. This is a future reality that forms us in the here and now. Friends, how can we dare to love in a cold world? Why bother? How can we dare hope in a place that seems so hopeless? Why bother? How can we continue to hunger and thirst for good? Because of this, on this mountain, the Lord will prepare feasts of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of age wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines on this mountain. He will destroy, has destroyed the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He has swallowed up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And hear this, because this isn't my idea. This wasn't Isaiah's idea. How does this last verse end? The Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. And so in our personal lives, our grief does not give way to despair. We're not sold over to our despair, no matter how deep it feels. We persist in hope because the Lord has spoken. We persist in hope because this isn't my idea, this isn't your idea, this is His. We're wrapped up into it. The Lord has spoken. God promises to redeem His creation as far as the curse of sin is found, which we will fully see when Jesus comes to make all things new. But we're invited to enter into partial ways in the here and now. Now, I want to end with my second Lord of the Wings quote because I actually think it's a good application of this. At the end of the second movie, which part of one quote the movie, not the book, the end of the second movie, Frodo and Sam, who have this impossible mission in front of them to walk into the very center of evil in the world, in a sense, and try to destroy this weapon that cannot be bent toward good. They're staring at the face of this impossible mission, and they're just going to go together. And they don't know how they're going to do it. And then Sam, the very simple gardener in the Lord of the Rings, the, the hero of the story, in my opinion, a good friend, Sam, who's attended to and gone with his buddy Frodo, he says this in the midst of their struggles. It's all wrong. Our rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter. Full of darkness and danger they were, but sometimes, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. When the sun shines, it will shine out with fear. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in, the, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. Because they were holding on to something. And Frodo under the weight of this responsibility. <laughs> says, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Now that's inspiring, this thought that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. But the good news for us this morning, 
Is it the fight to defeat death? The preparing of this future table of abundance for us is not something we have to fight for. It's something that's been won for us by Jesus. And so when we are in the midst of trouble, when we are in the midst of despair, we can hold on, not just that there's good in this world that's worth fighting for, but that we have a God who has won the victory for us and is clinging to us in His place. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your good news. I thank You that it's not just the good news that comforts us in the here and now, that it's not just the good news for us individually, but it's good news that You're at work to destroy death, to destroy sin and its effects to the fullest extent. So I thank you for these spoilers, these pictures of what you're up to. I pray that we would cling to these promises, that we would see them with the eyes of faith, and that they would reverberate backwards to us now, that in the midst of our troubles, we would look to you and walk forward in your strength and honor. That we would hear your promises. And moved by your love, we would say, Amen.